Welcome to True Crime on Easy Street. That noise you heard was Scott throwing everything into the floor, if you heard that during the intro. It's been that kind of Monday. It has been that kind of a Monday, and it's raining, but we welcome ourselves to you once again. We're in your car radio. We're in your headphones. We're in your head. We're in your ears. <laughs> we're all up in you. So. <laughs> God, that's worse. <laughs> So we're so happy to be here. We have a wonderful show lined up for you today. But first, my name's Kelly Turner. And guess what? I'm still not a doctor. Still not a doctor. Still not. I'm Scott Wright and I'm still a mediocre journalist. Well, I'm Katie Givens and yep, still not a lawyer. We're working on that, but I know I keep thinking it's going to change one week. I'm not working on it. Kelly might be working (laughs) on it. All right, no, so not really. What Scott? Yeah, you've prepared for I've today's got episode. Page, I've got four pages of notes. Two this pages, episode, both sides. The person that we're talking about today is a very famous person. Mm-hmm. I'm sure both of our listeners will know. Yep. Well, I think this we've got person. three now because Do I we talked have three? to I talked to Casey West yesterday. Oh. And when I mentioned the topic of today's show, you guys know how I can't keep a secret. So I went ahead and spilled the beans on that. Of and, course you did. And she rattle off a litany of facts that I grabbed a pen and started trying to jot down because I hadn't done all my homework yet. So I grabbed a pen and was jotting things down as Casey was speaking. So kudos to Casey for making yes, this podcast better you, than Casey. it would have been otherwise. Um, so the story of Eric Rudolph, Eric Robert Rudolph begins. It doesn't begin in Alabama. It, his story ends, or at least a portion of it ends in Alabama. And the, the reason that he was caught was because of the crime that he perpetrated in Birmingham. And that took place in January of 1998. So a few of the things that were going on in 1998, first of all, uh, it was the first ever approval of the erectile dysfunction drug Viagra by the FDA. I thought that one stood out, pun intended. <laughs> but um, um. Yeah. Um, Phil Hartman, my favorite SNL character actor of all times, uh, was killed by his wife. Mm who then committed Love suicide him. in May of 1998. If you don't remember Phil Hartman, he'd had the, uh, he was caveman lawyer. And, uh, Didn't he do an incredible Bill Clinton? Uh, an incredible Bill Clinton. Thank you. <laughs> I wrote that down. And speaking of Bill Clinton, the Mona, Monica Lewinsky scandal was huge Ooh. in the summer, or in the, uh, the spring of 1998. Saving Private Ryan premiered in movie theaters in July. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that film and if you haven't seen Saving Private Ryan, the, the opening sequence of the invasion of Omaha Beach on D-Day, uh, one of the most realistic filmed battle sequences of all time, I still remember sitting in the theater, and it, it takes 10 or 12 or 15 minutes, and there's finally a lull in the action. You can finally take a breath, and I will never forget that there was an elderly couple sitting down in front of me, and when, when that first scene was over and it got quiet, that man was crying. Oh. And I don't know if he was at D-Day or knew somebody who was, but that was very moving. Oh, and I will yeah. never forget that. Oh my goodness. Um, that is a great movie. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Bellagio Casino in Las Vegas opened. That's the one with big fountains okay. out front. That okay. opened in 1998. Yeah. And lastly, John Glenn, the first American to ever orbit the Earth, returned to space in November of 1998 as a 77-year-old former and Suddenly, current again, astronaut. He got to ride. Seventy-seven. He got to go into space on the Discovery, the space shuttle Discovery, at the age of seventy-seven. That's amazing. I love. I love all of those facts. 
Well, you know how I like to yeah. dig up Do you these. have any popular songs? Did you know any popular I songs? I didn't do songs or movies. Well, I did the one movie. I did do songs this time. Anybody can... Can you think of anything? It's 1998. I'll I do mean, music. Like, Isn't that Britney Spears? P. Diddy? Probably. Was it P. Diddy, it P. Diddy at Perhaps. the time? So it is I'll, I'll, do, I'll do songs Puff again. Puff Daddy. <laughs> Maybe he was Puff Daddy then. But he changed his name. He's changed it a million times. Diddy. Yeah, but he might have been actually Puff Daddy. But then who's... Um, I feel like this is a Backstreet Boys time. Yeah. Is that probably. it? Maybe. Probably. I don't know. Um, the research materials that I used uh, to get ready for this story, several boilerplate documentaries on YouTube that pretty much anything that we've done so far, there's something usually horribly done, uh, horribly produced on YouTube, and this was no exception. Uh, but then there's a book that was really good. It's called Eric Rudolph, Murder, Myth, and the Pursuit of an American Outlaw by Marianne Vollers, V-O-L-L-E-R-S. It was printed in 2007. A lot of really good information in that book. I read it over the weekend and took my notes that I mentioned. So let's get right into it. Uh, on January the 28th, 1998, a homemade bomb was placed inside a plastic toolbox stuffed with nails and other shrapnel and placed near the door of a women's clinic on 17th Street in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and then it was remotely detonated, investigators would determine later, just outside the front door as an off-duty police officer who was, uh, he was moonlighting as a security guard at the clinic, just as he and a nurse, his name was Robert Sanderson, and the nurse's name was Emily Lyons, just as they were about to enter the building, someone remotely detonated that bomb. Sanderson was killed instantly. Emily Lyons was horribly disfigured and probably would have died except for the fact that when they got her to the hospital just down the street, the trauma surgeons who worked at the particular hospital, I didn't write down if it was St. Vincent's or UAB, but both of those hospitals pretty close to this area of town, they were having a, a faculty meeting, all the trauma surgeons just down the hall from the ER. And when they wheeled her in, they were already scrubbed up and ready and they saved her life, everybody working on a different part of her body. Horribly disfigured, a lot of her skin missing, blind in both eyes practically, but they saved her life. And that probably would not have happened but for those circumstances. That's amazing. Um, Sanderson, like I said, was killed instantly. Uh, there was a witness to, not necessarily to the explosion itself, a UAB student was doing his laundry in the dormitory just down the street, and. The bomb went off. There's smoke above the trees after the loud noise. Everybody is running in that direction, except for one guy who looks like he's, uh, he's in disguise, maybe. He's got a backpack, and he's, he's got long hair and sunglasses and a hat, and he is not looking anywhere near the commotion. So that's a little suspicious. That's like a, what like this a normal guy, person would right. turn and be like, whoa, what's going on? That's what this guy thought. So he followed him, and there's a long chase that ensues. He jumps into a pickup truck, this mysterious person. Uh, the witness, the UAB student, writes down his license plate and calls 911. And that's how they caught Eric Rudolph, ultimately. Or that's how they knew who they were looking for. They didn't catch him for five more years. And we'll get into the details that's of that. That's an excellent observation by this student. This right? was a, a University of Alabama Birmingham College yes. student. Yeah, who later went on. He decided he didn't like medicine years later. And by the time Eric Rudolph was caught, and he actually got to testify or to give his statement in a courtroom, he had already graduated from Harvard Law School. So he was a doctor and a lawyer. Very smart human Smart being. guy. Yep. So, and very observant as well, and it turned out. Very overly qualified 
for this room. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a doctor and a lawyer. Yeah, for sure. And probably can write better than I can. <laughs> he could do this show all by himself. Um, so Rudolph was named as a suspect on Valentine's Day a couple of weeks later in 1998. And eventually, uh, in May of that year, they figured out that he was probably also the person who had set off a bomb at Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta two years before, a year and a half before July of 1996. So they put him on the FBI, FBI most wanted list. And I, I guess it's October. Let me look at my notes. It's October uh, before they officially list him as the probable perpetrator of the Olympic Park bombing. But he's on the FBI most wanted list in May. And they, they know his address because of the, they, they run the, the license plate and they figure out where he's where he most recently lived. And so they go look for him and he's not there. And we'll, I'll, I'll get some more details to you in a minute, but there were two other bombings that he committed before he committed. Help me if I get this wrong, Katie. He bombed two other places before the Birmingham. The Birmingham bombing was the last one. He bombed an abortion clinic in Atlanta. Right. A bar in Atlanta called the Other Side Lounge, which was a lesbian bar. Right. And then he did the Centennial Olympic Park bombings at the 96 Summer Olympics. So that was in 96 yeah. when he was doing all of those and then, you know, sauntered over into Alabama and decided to keep going. And when they figured out that he probably was the person, and there, the reason that they know or that they suspected at the time that he was tied into all of these bombings was there was a lot of similarities in the bombing components. Uh, there was a there was a metal, a steel plate that was at the base of several of these bombs that it seemed like it was made to project the explosion in a particular direction to inflict maximum damage. And both the Sandy Springs bombing and the other side lounge bombing were ambush bombings. And by that, I mean, there was a small bomb that went off to get a response from EMTs and police and fire department. And then about 30 or 45 minutes later, a much larger directed explosion goes off to try and hurt as many federal government officials as possible because it turns out that one of the things, Eric Rudolph is very pro-life. That's why we get the, the abortion clinics. And he also hates the federal government. And he hates gay people. And, and, and homosexuals. He's, Despite the fact that he has a brother who is gay. And he's pro-life. And he demonstrates this by exploding bombs, murdering people. Ironic. He rationalized his action saying that he was serving the cause of anti-abortion and anti-gay terrorism. Right. That's where okay. All right. Yeah, that's. I yeah. mean, I, I, I disagree, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, um, mm, that's how he rationalized that's it. How that's he, what he, that's yes, what he, his rationalization. Gotcha. So who is Eric Randall? I'm sorry, Robert. I keep wanting to say Randall Rudolph. I don't know why. Uh, it's Eric Robert Rudolph. He was born on September the 19th, 1966 in Merritt Island, Florida, the fifth of six children of Robert and Pat Rudolph. Uh, his brother-in-law described him to the FBI as a loner, no friends, secretive, anti-government sentiments, as we mentioned. And uh, his, he was basically, he was a carpenter, so he was handy with tools. Sporadically, he worked as a carpenter. Uh, his father died in 1981, about the time Eric was 15. And so the family moves to the Western Appalachians in North Carolina, or the, the Appalachians in Western North Carolina, sort of a remote area. And he grows up from the age of 15 to 18 with a next door neighbor who is 
who feeds on, he feeds off of the sentiments of this neighbor who has a lot of the same convictions that Eric has started to display as a young man. Um, when he was 18, Eric joined the army, but he got himself kicked out of the army after, before too long because he didn't like to, and I'm quoting from the book, he hated saluting black people and women. He thought that women belonged at home, barefoot and pregnant. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, so he got himself kicked out of the army by failing a drug test. If you fail two marijuana tests at the time, they, kick you, they give you a chance to be discharged from the army. And he took that because he, he loved the training that he got. Oh, and some of the training that he got was at Fort Benning. We mentioned Fort Benning when we talked about Governor Patterson's father last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got trained at Fort Benning and it was in, it, among the things he learned how to do, explosives and ambush tactics. Mm. So that looks a little suspicious. Um. So he gets out of the army, and it's eight years after he leaves the army before the bombings begin, the first one being the Olympic Park bombing. And he didn't so much as, he, didn't, he left no trail of any kind. He paid cash. The, there was no paper trail, no criminal record, except for his driver's license and his vehicle registration. He disappeared off the map, off the grid, I guess. So it made it hard to figure out exactly how to find him. It, 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 sure. Although it did turn out to be the, the vehicle registration that had his address on it, dumbass. For some reason, he, that's, so that's how they found him. Or that's how they found where he was. He, he heard a radio broadcast the day that he was announced as a suspect in the Birmingham bombing. And when they got to his trailer a couple of days later, or maybe that same afternoon, not too long after, uh, there was still uh, food in the kitchen, drawers flung open, most everything of value gone out of the house, except for $1,600 that he left behind a picture frame. I guess he, he left so fast that he forgot, he forgot to get his money. To get that. Yeah. Um, and just another little bit about the psychosis that was Eric Rudolph. One of his girlfriends, a former girlfriend from high school, said that he never wanted to have his picture taken. Even, then, even as a 15, 16-year-old, he didn't want to have his picture taken. He wouldn't sign people's yearbooks because he didn't want anyone to have a sample of his handwriting. So he's got these crazy notions about what the government is up to. He didn't, he, he scorned social, uh, spurned social security numbers. He was not into any of that. But yet registered his vehicle. I guess that's the for one the thing. Tag. For the tag. He, he didn't want to get pulled over. Didn't want so to get pulled over. Try to but blend used in and, his actual information. Yeah. Can always, you even get a tag with using false information? I, just, I always wonder why I didn't just rip a tag off someone else's car and slap it on the back of his. Yeah, it was probably easier to do in 1990 whatever than it would be today. I'm, you know, without computer verification. Right. Yeah. This was, you know, mid nineties. So a lot of stuff was still on like paper back then. Tell them anything. You can just walk in and say, oh, I live it. I always wondered about that. You know, back in the fifties and sixties before there were pictures on your driver's license. Hell, I could be anybody. Seems like it'd be a lot easier to fake a driver's license. People were. Right. <laughs> we need to, we need to pull it's probably why there is now a photo. Yeah. On there. Good idea. Whoever thought of that. So let's get back to the summer of 1998. So Rudolph is on the run. He figures out that they're looking for him. He takes off into the Nantahala National Forest, 500,000 acres in Western North Carolina. And that's as big as the state of Rhode Island. It mentioned in the book. Um, at one point, they figured out that he had a storage building somewhere in the Murphy, North Carolina area, which is where his address was. And they go in and they, they get a warrant and they go in 
They find a lot of survivalist literature, nothing really of value except the survivalist literature, a biography of Timothy McVeigh, who three years earlier had Oklahoma, blown up the Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, City building, okay. uh, federal building. Uh, there's books on racism, books on Holocaust denial. Sounds like something a Georgia congresswoman would read, but that's another episode for another time. Uh, but this no, guy sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, a hoot. <laughs> I mean, I can't at parties, I was alone can you imagine? Um, and there was, do you guys, are you familiar with the identity Christian sect of religion? Do you guys know what that is? I didn't. I had to look no. it up. Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a branch of Christianity in which they believe that Adam fathered Abel and created the white race, but that Cain was not Abel's brother. He was the offspring of an unholy fornication between Eve and Satan himself and sired the line of Jews, mud people, and non-white races. And mud people is described as people without a soul. Good gracious. So these, that's another thing. I, I should have worked that in earlier, but that's another thing that Eric Rudolph uh, supposedly believes and talks about when he releases a manifesto uh, years after he is captured. That makes what? my head hurt. I know. Why do they all have a manifesto? I do not know. Why? In prison, you don't have a time to do anything else. Well, this was before that. I mean, oh, th- th- okay. this, this is what he believed all along. And this was part of the, he spent some time after, uh, before he was 18, before he joined the army, he and his mother went out to Missouri to this identity Christian sect church and, and learned these things. And he left after some time because he, he made some people, people angry, rubbed the leader of this church the wrong way. And so they left. Uh, but that's where he picked that up. So just another crazy thing. Do, do we know his IQ? I, I do not know what his IQ is, but he was described by some of the folks that he went to school with and some of the former teachers that he had as an intelligent person. He, he uh, an avid reader, mostly self-educated, but an avid reader. And there's a section in the book where the author, Marianne Vollers, asks him, to list the 10 books that you would want if you could only have 10 for the rest of your life. War and Peace, Tolstoy, uh, a lot of philosophical books, nothing really in the hateful genre. Mm-hmm. So I assume that he'd read all of these books previously and was familiar with, he listed every title and the author. And I didn't write down all 10 of them, but, but, but it was nothing well that, read. that stood out to you as, no, like you said hateful or no, but but but, but well he obviously read, was, but well hateful. read, <laughs> yeah, obviously he was. Um, and so in May in May of nineteen ninety eight, May the fifth, the FBI posts a one million dollar reward for his capture. And again, like I said, it's it's almost exactly five years. It's five years and three weeks until he is found. And that's because he got sloppy one night uh, digging through a dumpster behind the Save-A-Lot grocery store in Murphy, North Carolina. And a rookie cop just happened to turn around behind the grocery store. And before Eric could run off into the shadows, uh, freeze, put your hands up. And it, it almost seemed like he was tired of running. He was, at that point, he was, you got me. So this is how he would, he would sneak into town at night and rummage through garbage to get food and exactly that was one of the ways there was there was a story from his high school days that said at one point or and he would do this occasionally he would walk out of the school on friday afternoon with a with a backpack over his back he would show back up to class on monday morning in the same clothes covered in dirt 
he had spent the weekend living off the land in the woods. And the neighbor that I mentioned earlier in North Carolina, he got a lot of training about how to take care of yourself and, and uh, skin animals and, and dress, field dress animals. So he was able to apply all of these things that he learned and, and not to mention the survival training that he learned at Fort Benning while he was in the army. So, and, and he's in school doing this high school. No, he dropped out of high school. He got his GED okay. so that he could join the army. So when he's 15, 16, but what you were referring to was him being in high school. Though. Yeah. Yeah. When right. he was before, in high school, before he, before, when they moved to North Carolina and he got mm-hmm. into high school, he didn't last maybe half a year or a year. And then he never went back. So I'm just curious. His home life was lax. I, yeah. I just don't, you know, I uh, don't see one of my children doing that on the weekend. Well, Pat Rudolph said at, in one interview that she always wanted her children to be independent thinkers. And, okay. and there was one point where she voiced regret about the fact that she'd had six children because she said, and I'm not, this isn't a direct quote, but along the lines of, you can't really give them all the attention that they deserve when you have that many children. Well, and especially we have the father who's passed away. And the father and the father has and passed so away. And so did Pat remarry? Not that it is ever mentioned. Okay. No, so she's not remarried they're, today they're that I know of. confiding in this neighbor, or Eric is. His, his neighbor and his older brothers, because he's the fifth of six. Now, do the older brothers share this kind of thinking? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, the, so they were raised this way, one, basically. One brother is gay and lives in Greenwich Village with his, oh, okay. with his companion. And two or three of the others are as eccentric, as off the beaten path um, as Eric. Do is. any of these, and obviously not the, the brother who's gay, but do do they share his hatred of yes. other people? Uh, that is even the, the Even the gay brother? No, 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 not, not him by any account that I read. Okay. He's living, he's gotten the hell out of So he said, I'm North out of Carolina. here. I'm, I'm done yeah. with you. Well, now okay. I know in March, 1998, one brother named Daniel cut off his hand yeah. to protest what he saw as mistreatment of Eric by the media and the FBI. Mm. Cut off his hand. And he, he videotaped hand. it and sent the videotape to the FBI. That is commitment. Yeah. What the heck? He, he tied a tourniquet around his arm and turned on the circle saw in the garage. Oh my goodness. And wow. ran his uh-uh. hand down. No, 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 no. I yeah. can't even. My whole arm hurts. Me too. Uh, so when they found, when they finally find the guy, they, they find his campsites, and uh, he, he kept a very neat campsite. His boots were in a straight line. Everything was neatly folded and you know, two pairs of clothes, and he even had a stolen Taco Bell uniform that I assume he used it. Maybe if he's going to go rummage behind the Taco Bell, maybe somebody will think he's just one of the employees oh, looking for I mean, a lost classroom or something. That's very right. smart. I get his favorite dumpster. Yeah, the guy learned a lot. Uh, Oh, I can't imagine the Taco he Bell He learned a lot dumpster. from the U.S. Army. I mean, nothing against Taco Bell. I mean, Taco yeah. Bell's fine, but the Taco Bell dumpster seems like it would be Particularly extra. messy. Just, yeah, extra. Yeah. Mushy, were, the word mushy oh, comes to mind. Mushy, oh, gosh. thank you. Yikes. Uh, Yikes. He, would, he would walk into town. Folks, what I don't understand is, I guess he just wanted, he took pride in the fact that he could live off the land and do this himself. I never understood why. Because after six months, the FBI pretty much stopped. There was still a token presence in Murphy, North Carolina. They didn't give up, but it wasn't 200 agents scouring the woods all day, every day, and helicopters flying overhead after a few months. I never understood why he didn't just steal a car and drive off to Canada and never come back. I ne- and I don't know of any place that he was ever asked, why did you stay in the woods? I, I can only assume that it's because he, he thought that that was the his best move. We just, yeah, hiding out, but he also hates people. 
Yeah. I mean, that's true. He would have to interact with society if he Canada, moved somewhere else. I would say it's, I mean, I don't know how diverse Canada is, but, but it seems it's like going to be more diverse in the Carolinas. Yeah. I was say, more so, than Murphy, North Carolina. Pl- plenty so, of wilderness in, in Canada to get lost but in. But it's also very cold. That yes. is true. It is. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't there. begin to understand his thinking, but I'm just, I, but obviously he felt the safest doing yeah, this. We'll never know. I don't but, know. He's, he's still in the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. I could write him a letter and ask him. Well, we he could. might respond and then we could read that on a future show. Be sure and tell him you're a white male. I will. <laughs> um, you might not answer hey, us. You know what? Screw it. I'm like, Katie do or I. Don't tell him you're a Democrat. <laughs> wrote him I will not tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't. You're not going to get an answer. <laughs> if he ever gets out, he's coming straight to my house. But so, okay, but. So back to what you were saying at the, at the, at the dumpster and mm-hmm. the cop catches him and he's kind of, it looks like he's getting ragged and he's getting tired. Yeah. He's, he's, he's pretty rough at that point. Uh, hasn't shaved in a while. Smells like he hasn't had a bath in a while. And sure enough, he hasn't. Um, and the, the cop who finds him, uh, like I said, he's a 21 year old. He had been a 15 year old boy scout five years before 16 year old boy scout who rode around with the cops. They, they let the boy scouts you know, go on, uh, I don't, can't remember what I'm ride along, ride along patrols. Right. And so he had, he had been on some of the searches for Eric Rudolph. So he knew what he looked like. He knew who he had the second he rolled him over and looked at him. He lied and said he was someone else. Uh, and then they got him in the car and a couple of other guys showed up and they stick their heads in the window and look back out at each other. And one of them sticks his head back in and says, we know that you're not who you think you are. And in the book, it says, Eric looked at them and gave them a big shit eating grin and said, you got me. Can you imagine being these cops? I mean, you know that this is a high profile guy that's mm-hmm. been on the run for so many years. Yeah. I mean, adrenaline. That was at three. Wow. That was between three. Wow. Drink up. That <laughs> was between three and four wow. o'clock in the morning. So by four thirty, five o'clock, the president of the United States had been woken up within an hour and a half. The Attorney General Janet Reno, uh, Louis Free, the director of the FBI, it wasn't long before everybody knew that Eric Rudolph had been captured and uh, he spent the weekend in the Cherokee County, North Carolina jail. You said Cherokee County and I was like, what? Yeah. yeah. What? The, but this is Cherokee County, Cherokee North County, Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. Uh, they kept him for the weekend and then they flew him by helicopter to, uh, I guess Birmingham is they, where they well, took him, they right? They extradited him to Alabama, yeah. Okay, because that was the that was the strongest case that they had. There was a lot of talk, and I'm, I don't want to step on Katie's part of the story, but there was a lot of discussion among the Northern District of Alabama and the FBI and the Northern District of Georgia about where he was going to be, who was going to get him first, who was going to first crack at him. And Doug Jones, who was a, a recent senator from the state of Alabama until Tommy Tuberville won the election last November, um, he was the district attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, right? So a lot of influence Doug Jones had, it turns out. And one of the cases that he's been able to hang his hat on all these years, in addition to the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, and we'll, we're going to do that down the road at some point, mm-hmm. right? Can't yes. wait to do that one. Yes. Anyway, so Doug, jo- Doug Jones has enough uh, chits piled away that he gets the first crack at Eric Rudolph. And they're going to try him in Birmingham first because there's, there's two eyewitnesses, the, 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 the UAB student. And then there was another person who helped the UAB student try and track him down after he ran into a, a place and tried to call 911. Someone else says, oh, there he goes right there. And so they both ran out. So there's two witnesses. And then there was actually a lady who was driving her car on the interstate later that morning. 
and she was getting back onto I-59 at the Trustville exit, headed, on, headed north on I-59, and some asshat in a silver Nissan pickup truck with a cream-colored camper on the back would not get over and let her merge into traffic. And so when she finally got around him, she stopped beside him, leaned over, and gave him the finger. And the guy looks at her like, what did I do? And when she sees the news later, she realizes that she had stared at Eric Rudolph's face. She wow. gave the finger to wow. Eric Rudolph. She was the first person. To give. So, some others have since then. I'm sure. Um, yeah, there's a funny story at the, at the trial, and, I, and I'll shut up after this. The, the nurse, uh, Mrs. Lyons, when she finally, at the sentencing hearing in summer of 2005, one of the injuries that she had suffered was they'd had to fuse together her middle finger to the rest of her hand. And she said something along the lines of, I've always wanted to show you the injury that you gave me. And she, two chuckles in the courtroom, she did. So she gave so him the at least finger. two people have given Eric Rudolph the middle yeah, finger. Is she permanently blind or did they rest, were they able to restore her? One eye sight? is artificial and the other eye is mostly blind. Oh, gosh. So her life changed forever that day. That is. But, but she gave him the middle finger. She did get a chance to do that at the sentencing hearing in Birmingham. And, and the judge was perfectly okay with that. It didn't mention. Because I mean, being, I'm thinking if you, if you shoot someone a bird, you could possibly get. Cited for contempt. Contempt, of course. Yeah, I, is that, he, yeah. I think she sure got a free pass that yeah. day. Probably right, and, judge was like, And that's pretty much my part of the story. Now we're into the courtroom, and that's where our not a lawyer yeah. member of the team jumps in. So well, save me, Katie. I'll go just go through some dates real quick. So January of 1998, the bomb explodes in Birmingham, killing Officer Sanderson, who was affectionately known as Sandy. Sandy, right. And maiming Emily Lyons for life. And then in February of 98, Rudolph is officially named a suspect in the case because of the eyewitness that Scott discussed running the license plates. A manhunt was ensued in his plates, I'm assuming were um, North Carolina plates because yeah. that's where the manhunt started Correct. in North Carolina. Yeah, his car was registered in... Uh Murphy, Cherokee County, I guess, North and Carolina. And he was spotted in North Carolina soon after that as well. And so February, manhunt ensues. March is when his brother cut, cuts off his hand. May is when he's named to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. The mm-hmm. million dollar reward is offered. In July, a North Carolina store owner reports that he's taken like six months worth of supplies from his store. And oh left, yeah, I like, forgot about that. They left $500 mm-hmm. on the counter. That's so he's right. getting money somewhere because he keeps having cash. Well, he used to, he had been a uh, he had been a marijuana he had grown marijuana in the wilderness in years past. It turned out, and he was very slick about that as well. He grew it in the ditches close to the road, five or six plants at a time, and or, or down the where the power lines were cut so that it would get some sunshine. And he never sold his product anywhere around where he was. He would get on a bus sometimes in his U.S. Army uniform that he still had and a rucksack full of marijuana and drive to, or take the bus to Nashville, Tennessee and sell his weed there. So he had a, he had a a way to make some money. Wow. Didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So then that's another drink, by the way, because there's a lot of wows. There's going to be a lot more. (laughs) So he's on the runs in May 31st, 2005. He's arrested after five years of being a fugitive when the rookie cop called him. 2003. 2003, yes, sorry. May 31st, 2003, five years. He is charged with four, he's charged with the four bombings, like I said. The one at the abortion clinic in Birmingham, abortion clinic in Atlanta, bar in Atlanta, 
Centennial Park bombings. Mm-hmm. Four separate bombings. He is charged on my birthday, October 14th, 2003. Oh, happy birthday. I know. I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask. <laughs> he was initially initially defended by a man named Richard Jaffe. He withdrew and then was replaced by a woman named Judy Clark. He was defended by a woman? Yes. And wow. a Jew. Wow. No, I didn't There's even, two I didn't even look There's into two Judy. Yeah, ja- ja- no, Jaffe. Oh, Jaffe was the Jaffe Jew. was Jewish. Yeah. Okay. And in that the book, must be why he, <laughs> he, he, said, book, I, he said, I'm out, guys. In the book, they were really, they became really good friends. They He left the case. Yeah. And he said, uh, the Jaffe, I'm not sure if we're pronouncing it right, but let's stick either. with that. We're going to call him J- J-A-F-F-E. If someone mm-hmm. else knows, we leave it in the deeply apologize if we're mispronouncing your name. He told him right up front, hey, listen. I've been assigned to defend you and I'm Jewish. Are you okay with that? And he's like, absolutely. I, that's fine with me. And the reason so he's he, all of a sudden okay with Jewish They became people. friends. They played basketball together in the jail on occasion. Uh, that's messed up. The guy was, he said he was always super nice to me. He was a great individual one-on-one person to get to know. Uh, and the reason that he left the case, according to uh, Miss Voller's book, is because Clark, Mrs. Clark, mm-hmm. didn't feel like... Jaffe was doing a good enough job, even though he defended, he was the most prominent death penalty lawyer in the state of Alabama. She didn't feel like he was doing a good enough job, so she goes to the judge and gets him removed and her put in his place. She wanted her name in some history book. I think maybe she did. Well, how did he get along with her? Uh, it, it said, by all accounts, it was fine. They were, he, he realized after they took over the case, she and her associates took over the case, that things did seem to move a lot faster. There were a lot more motions that got filed. Uh, so he was fine with the change. He didn't like it at first because he'd become friends with Jaffe. But once he saw how much harder they were going to work for him, he was okay with that. Okay. He had uh, 23 state and federal homicide charges combined. Wow. When you put up all his charges that they had him on with for all the different deaths of all the different bombings and everything else that went on. And I guess you can, I, I, th- I guess state and federal charges can overlap. So his main goal in this is he's trying to avoid the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And like Scott mentioned, Alabama and Georgia are fighting over who's going to try him first. Where do we have the best case? You know, obviously, you know, if something doesn't stick, they'll throw him to the next state because they were both going to try him. They decided to, start in Birmingham because they had the strongest case. They had the eyewitness seeing him leaving the scene, removing the wig, getting in the Nissan pickup truck with the Mm, license plates. Also in that rented storage locker that they found in North Carolina, there was the same nails in that, (sighs) in that storage locker that that were in the bomb where Mm -hmm. he blew up the bomb and had the nails and the the shrapnel and all. There was the, there was that material, the exact same nails in that storage locker. That is correct. Let me, can I just ask yeah. a question? And Scott, I'm going to apologize if you've covered this. I did already, but okay. go ahead. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I was, that was when I was... Um, Fiddling with your phone? Messing with my phone. Uh-huh. Um, do we know why he chose Birmingham, Alabama as a uh, spot? Let me think what it said. He said that it, he thought that it would throw agents, the FBI off the trail, thought it was far enough away from Atlanta that it would throw him off the trail. And there were three abortion clinics in Birmingham. And of the three, this was the easiest one to access. The others were in high-rise buildings. You couldn't really get to them or they had gates around them. This one was just a two-story painted brick building on the side of the street with a red awning over the, over the door in a small parking lot. So it was the easiest one. And if I didn't mention it, I think I did. He had to 
remote control. He used a remote control that you would use to fly a uh, an airplane, a small air, you know radio controlled airplane. That was the triggering device that he used. So he had to be in the line of sight to see wow. what was happening. And the reason the bomb went off when it did was Officer Sanderson had seen it. It was covered with some fake ivy that he'd bought at a Walmart. And when they, when he and Mrs. Lyons walked towards the door that morning to open the door to to begin their day, they noticed it. And Officer Sanderson grabbed his baton and was just about to poke at it and see what it was because it didn't, it wasn't there the day before. Mm-hmm. And he realized he had to blow it up right then. He wanted to wait until the lobby was full because the lobby had yeah, a glass that's, front. That's what I wondered. He wanted to kill ten people. Yeah, uh, but he had to set the bomb off then because it was about to be discovered. Good grief. Mm-hmm. That is cold-hearted, cold-hearted to watch people. And watch it. Uh, ugh. Watch it happen. Ugh. So, April 8th, 2005, weeks before the trial was set to begin, he announced that he'll, he's going to plead guilty to all the charges, the Alabama charges mm-hmm. and the Georgia charges. So, on uh, April 13th, 2005, he goes to both Alabama, he goes in Birmingham and Atlanta and makes his pleas in person of guilty. He claimed that he did this in order to miss the death penalty. He agreed to plead guilty and they took the death penalty off the case or off the table. So he claimed that he had deprived the government of its goal of sentencing him to death. These are direct quotes. And that the fact that I have entered an agreement with the government is purely a tactical choice on my part and in no way legitimate legitimizes the moral authority of the government to judge this matter or impute my guilt. Yeah. He, 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 it, it was He's his afraid way of, having, of the death penalty. Of course yeah. he was. He's a coward. And at the same time, the federal government was afraid that some jury, all it would take is one, in the passage that I read, one pro-life juror could hang the jury, have mm-hmm. a mistrial could be declared, and then you got to do the whole thing all over again. It could be... A, conse- a, a series of cases where he, they can never get him because of things that are out of their control. So it was a good idea for them, or it was a good deal for them because they get him in prison for the rest of his life. But it was his way of having the last word, right? And and getting to make these these speeches and sound like mm-hmm. this. Ugh, he gets to blah, speak blah, on blah. moral authority. <laughs> yeah, he's looking for the moral high ground, and that that's his way to get it. Is I, I get to live, and he's. Uh, he was 29 when he bombed Olympic Park, so he's 38 when he's sentenced to life in prison, and that was 16 years ago, so now he's 51, 52, 53, somewhere in there. Yeah. He's born in 66, so he's 51. He'll be 51. No, I'm sorry. He'll be 55 mm-hmm. uh, Math in September, mm. yeah. so he's 54. July of 2005, he's sentenced to two consecutive life terms without parole in the Birmingham bombings. Then in August, he's sentenced to two more consecutive life sentences for the bombings in Atlanta. So he's got back-to-back-to-back-to-back life sentences if he wants to turn into a cap. Right. So these life sentences in the state of Alabama, we've we've covered this before. Well, these are federal Uh, charges. These actually mean life. These These aren't in the 60s anymore. He's not going to be eligible eligible for parole um, without parole. With uh, what's her name from the first episode? Right, Judith Ann Neely. 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 These are not state charges; they're federal charges. And he's in that supermax uh, prison in Colorado, and he is in the same cell block with uh, Zacharias Musawi, who was the twentieth hijacker on September the eleventh, two thousand one. Oh wow! He is in the same uh, cell block with Richard Reed, I believe the the shoe bomber. 
that was caught before he could light the fuse on the, mm. the boots that were packed with explosives on that domestic airline flight. Mm. And he is in the same cell block with Ted Kaczynski. The Unabomber. The Unabomber. Mm. He said he says Ted Kaczynski never comes out of his cell. They get two or three times a week. Yeah, there's they, this big production where they, t- you know this too, Katie? Yeah, they have to spend 23 hours alone per day in their cell. Yeah. Um, a small cell. The bed takes up half the room. Just 80 you know, square feet. Not very big at all. And once, two or three times a week, they get to go into a, he's just, he describes it in letters. He, he started writing a series of letters to this author, to Marianne Vollers. That's how she got a lot of this information that no one else knows. Um, it's basically, he said, it looks like an empty swimming pool. And we walk in a door in the bottom of it and there's chain link fence over the top. And that's all that we get to see blue sky for a little while, once or twice a week. Oh, and then but it's like down. Like, yeah. Like it's like. It's like it's in the, in the bottom. There's nothing. All they can see is through the, the hole in the ceiling. And then it's right back to their cell again. They eat all three of their meals alone in their cells. There's no common area. There's a TV, but there's a plexiglass shield over it. So you can't fiddle with it. And it's either educational programming or religious programming. So basically no television. And do they get to smoke cigarettes? I don't know, but he was a smoker because there's, he's always talking about when he was on the run about trying to find half burned cigarettes mm-hmm. somewhere. I'd have remembered reading something about that. And I don't, I don't know why that matters, but it always, it always seems to get me that, you know, you can be locked up and smoke cigarettes all day. Yeah. I don't know. That wasn't mentioned, but, uh, maybe not anymore. I would assume you can, if you're spending 23 hours alone in a cell block in a concrete cell, that's 80 square feet that they're not feeding you cigarettes. But th- or you're so not you, you're not allowed to buy them. I'm, I'm, they don't give them to you. Yeah, there's no mention of a commissary or or money or there's but nothing. But Kaczynski like that. never comes out, even on the day. Even, even on when, even on the day when they can all go out and and so they hang get out the, the choice. Like they, if if when the door opens, Kaczynski stays in his cell. He does not. And this want book was to... written in 2007, so it's that book's 14 years old. Um, so he hadn't been in there long at the time. Maybe things have changed since then. He may not even be in the same prison. Then I, I should have checked that to see. I didn't think about the fact that the book is. 14 years old, but that's where he was at the time. And that is, that is the, they call it the Alcatraz of the Rockies. That is where we send the worst of the worst these days is. Gives uh, you kind of chills to think yeah. about it as a place. Of, I, I thought about it when I was reading that passage. Do they get God, visitors? What if I was, Sounds just I awful. don't think so. I don't think so. I didn't think And so. the family's cut him off except for mom anyway. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, but Daniel, I don't think so. I, I, Daniel I mean, cut part of himself yeah, off cut for part him. of himself off, yeah. So Daniel's even done with him? After yes. cutting off his hand? Mm-hmm. They reattached his hand. <gasps> wow. I, okay. I missed yeah. that. Okay. They reattached his hand because there's a, subsequent to that occurrence, there's another meeting with FBI agents and mom and Daniel is there. And one of the agents says, I couldn't stop looking over to see where they'd reattached his hand. And it, it worked. Still worked. Wow. We've got a lot of reattachments happening yeah. lately in episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what they can reattach. <laughs> and it works. Hands, other parts. It's mm, crazy. It is. So they have, they're done with him. I mean, except mom and, and I, I, I'm not condoning anything that he's done, but sure. you kind of give mom a pass for this. It, it's well, got she to defended be. him until the day he accepted the plea deal. And then mm-hmm. a reporter called and asked her and she said, I'm I'm floored. I can't believe that he really did it. So she's got to deal with that. So we don't. We're not going to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We're not going to talk badly about his mother. That's, I mean, that's it's, what you, it, I can't imagine being in that position. Yeah. But, that's. You know. But if you're the mom, that's what you. You know. It's, th- thick or thin. 
Exactly. A prisoner is allowed five visits per month in a supermax prison. Okay, there you go. Five visits per month? That uh, just more than still seems excessive. I wouldn't think that they'd probably get many. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. And him other than his mom, uh, on a, and she lives in Florida, and she's in her, if she's still alive, she's got to be in her 80s by now. Yeah. Difficult she's to travel a, that She far. was living in a, an assisted living or an, a, a, a retirement home 14 years ago when she was in her mid-70s then. So, yeah, so probably yeah, not, not making sure. a lot of trips to Colorado. Yeah. Anyway, that's... Uh, okay, so we have reached the part of the show where we are going to shout out to the folks we mentioned last week that maybe we were uh, surmising that you might be sitting by the pool mm-hmm. listening to our podcast. Listening. And... Kelly had the bright idea to have folks uh, <laughs> shout out to us yeah, that, so that we could shout out back to them. And we had three people who mentioned that they were listening to us by the pool. They were the by weekend. the pool. So and here we go. Are we ready? Were they? Yes. Okay. So we have Angie Russell. Thank you, Angie. Yeah. Yes. We saw you on Facebook and Instagram. Yep. You covered all the bases. She doubled up. She is all by that she pool. She gets two shirts when we get merch. <laughs> then we have Clayton Lawless. Who gave us a wonderful review. And an ironic last name for a true crime podcast. I love oh, it. I love he it. gave us a wonderful review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Clayton. You we appreciate yes, it. Thank you. And then we have Jana Chestnut, who gave us an, a wonderful review on Apple Podcasts. Well was she at the year. pool? She was by the pool. Thanks, she Jana. Said, yeah, she Does said she have a pool that I don't know about? She, she was at someone's pool. Okay, because if she and Danny have put in a pool and I didn't get an invite to Uh-oh. the grand opening, I'm going to be pissed. Watch out. Watch out, yeah, Chestnut. When I see you again, Chestnut. <laughs> if you put in a pool, be careful. Watch out. <laughs> but thank you all. And uh, keep giving us those five-star ratings. Yeah, thanks. Keep uh, giving us those lovely, kind words. We do. We love the feedback. We we take it to heart. We try to do better. We try to get better every week. We do. Except we really do. Th- I feel like there was a huge regression this week. But no. normally, the normal flow great. is to get better. I think it was great. Yeah, I'm kidding. Maybe we did okay. Yes, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, Listen to us on Anchor. We're still working on Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you're listening right now. Just Spotify. Is that all of them? I don't know. Should we start over and do that whole thing again? No, let's don't. Let's leave it. I love it when we screw up and leave it in the show. (laughs) Just listen to us wherever you're listening now. And come see us out live. Uh, We'll we'll be back live in July, so don't miss a show. So much fun. Good night, everybody. 